Um, before we jump into the sermon, um, we're going to be reading Galatians uh, 2, verse 11. And as I was kind of preparing, there's something interesting in this passage that I need to actually explain before we jump in. If you're reading in the NIV, you will notice that the word uh, name for Peter is Peter. But if you're reading in the ESV, it says Cephas. Why? So actually, the word Peter means stone in the Greek. The word Cephas means stone in the Hebrew. And so Paul is actually calling Peter Cephas is actually the correct version because Peter is going back to his past. He's going back to the law, and so Paul refers to him as his old name. And so keep that in mind if you're reading different translations, and let's read together, starting at verse 11. It says this, But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is going to be fun. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came to drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, or Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Please join me in prayer. God, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you that it's active, that it's alive, that when we open it up, it comes to life. God, that you are working and speaking through it, and God, that this word that was written many years ago still speaks today. So God, as we reflect on the words of Paul, help us to understand what you want to say to us. How do we need to change? How do we become more like Christ? How, at times, are we hypocritical? And so, Spirit, minister to us. Open our ears and our hearts. And God, I was just even reflecting back on what you're doing in our church. Thank you for the baptisms. Thank you for adding to our staff team. Thank you for the many volunteers who serve day after day and week after week so that ministry can happen, so that people can take their next step with Jesus. God, thank you. But God, we also hunger for more of you. So God, lead us into a place where we can walk closely with you, walk humbly, and know that you are God. So God, speak to us in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So what's the most awkward cross-cultural experience that you've ever had? Who wants to share their story? In 2018, I was invited to go to Italy, specifically Rome. And here's a picture of Megan and I walking the streets of Rome. But the family that invited me was a missionary family. They went to our old church. And she grew up in Italian culture. 
And so before, before we went, she wanted to prepare me. So she sat me down in her living room, and she was like saying, Steve, can you pronounce this Italian word? I'm like, no. <laughs> it's hopeless. I'll use Google Translator or whatever it was. And then she was going to tell me, you know, here's what to expect around the family dinner table. When my family or whoever offers you seconds, say no. What? Even if you want seconds, say no. And then if they come around the second time, say no again. That was the polite thing to do. But then on the third time, say yes. What? Italian culture. She was also trying to tell me that when I was greeted, that I had to offer my cheek. So I would get kissed on this side of the cheek and then on this side of the cheek. I said, are you, are you sure? Do I really have to? Do I really want their lips on my cheek? So absolutely, if you don't do that, it's rude. It's, it's offensive to that culture. And if you really want to love them well, you need to offer your cheek. So fast forward, we get to Rome. I walk into the church, and there's this lineup of people that wants to meet me. And so I had to make a decision. Do I awkwardly just shake the hand and move on to the next person and the next person and not offer the cheek? Do I keep my distance? Now, if you go back to the conversation, the passionate Italian lady, you better. I will fight you if you don't offer the cheek. <laughs> so, of course... I get kissed and kissed and kissed and kissed. And I could see my friends watching from a distance laughing. They said it was the, the most favorite thing was watching how awkward I was, especially as their pastor kissed me. But why was I so hesitant? To be honest, there's something that happened that was even more awkward. It was meeting Megan's grandma. When we first got married, every single time we walked into their house, she would kiss me on the cheek. She had her dentures removed. And it was this slobbery kiss that left this mark every single time. But this one time... I offered her the cheek, and she grabbed both my cheeks and went and kissed me right on the lips. It is burned in my memory. <laughs> and she is no longer with us. She is with Jesus. But the question is, what are we willing to do and not do for the sake of the gospel? Do our actions actually line up with our preferences, or do they line up with what Jesus is calling us to do? What are we willing to fight for? What are we willing to go the distance? And so let's start with the question, what are we willing to fight for? 
let's start with what is conflict? Because right in this story, we have this conflict-type situation. But what comes to mind when you have conflict with someone? It's probably avoid, run, sweep it under the carpet so you don't have to deal with it. Maybe it's anger or division. Or maybe it's that red face or steam coming out of your ears. Whatever it is. What do you think of when you think of conflict? Webster defines conflict as this. To be opposed or contrary. To fail to be in agreement or in accord. You know, in our North American view of conflict, it is negative. We don't like it. We would rather avoid the problem than actually deal with the problem. We'd rather run away than engage in a conversation that would help us move forward. But here's the thing. Conflict isn't a bad thing. Conflict is actually a necessary thing if we want to grow relationally, if we want to grow spiritually. We have to learn to do conflict well in a healthy way that both people can grow and come to an understanding of how they can move forward. Maybe it's in marriage. Maybe it's in leadership. Maybe it's at work. And the bigger the conflict, the bigger the opportunity for growth and victory. The bigger the disagreement, the more the gospel can fill in the gaps and bring about unity. And as you're going to see, Paul is having a conflict conversation with Peter. He's calling him out. He's opposing him. And last week, we talked about the importance of unity. It actually works together. Conflict plays into unity. Think of unity as being this house or this table that we sit around. Unity is dwelling together. And the gospel is calling us to be together. It's calling us to pull in the same direction. And unity is found when we look at the will of God. Unity is found when we look at the ways of God. Unity is found when we look at the character of God. Not when we're in agreement, but when we look to Him. When we say, God, what do you want us to do as a group, as a community? What does your word say? What is consistent with who you are? It's found in God's ways, not our ways. And conflict is actually necessary so that we can really understand who we are and who he is. This is what Paul says, again in verse 11. It says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In other words, Paul is calling out Peter for his actions. He's, he's calling him out publicly. And I think before we jump in, it's worth saying that not all conflicts are the same. Not all conflicts need to be public. This isn't a template for how you deal with marriage problems or necessarily church problems. There's a whole other series on that. But conflict, it takes humility. It also takes us 
being in alignment with God. But in this case, Paul is calling out Peter publicly because he's leading an entire church astray because it's a public thing that is happening. So why does he oppose him? Let's keep reading verse 12. It says this. For before certain men came from James, he, as in Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. We'll get to that. In other words, before Jesus' brother James enters into the picture, he brings this group of guys. You would see Peter around the table eating with Gentiles, eating with sinners. A Gentile simply means the nations, the people groups that aren't Jewish. Before that, Peter was enjoying a meal with people who were not like him. He was having conversation. He was getting to know. He was connecting. Well, what happened? Well, this Jewish group comes in. And James is leading this group. He says, actually, we won't eat with the Gentiles. We have our own way of doing it. You know, for the Jews, mealtime was family time. The Jews had these certain traditions. There's certain things that they wouldn't eat. And whoever was around the table, they were family. If you had a place at the table, you were important. You belonged. You were a friend. You ate with family. You ate with close friends. They were living under the law of Moses, right? Jews don't eat pork. They don't eat certain things, but Gentiles do. So it was causing division. It was causing them to go different directions. Let's zoom out for a moment before we kind of get our hate on for the Jews. Let's talk about culture. What is culture? Well, Leslie Newbigin says this. Culture is the sum total of ways of living that's developed by a group of human beings and handed from one generation to another. Okay? So culture includes language, the arts, technology, laws, social interactions, what you eat, what you don't eat. It's been handed on. And Paul is saying, Peter, you see all these barriers that you're putting up? These barriers are cultural. These barriers are keeping people out. They're, they're keeping people from feeling like they, they belong. It's keeping people from feeling like they're loved. Peter, you should know better. Peter, the gospel calls us to remove the barriers. The gospel calls us to remove the walls. The gospel calls people to sit at the family table. Peter, when people come to faith, they belong. They're part of the family. We have a seat for them. Peter, wake up. You used to know this. You were sitting and dining and communing and bringing people in and loving them, and now you're not. What happened, Peter? The 
This is why Paul is opposing Peter's actions. Paul, he was a Jew. He was crossing cultural boundaries. He was inviting people in. He was eating with sinners. You know, that's why the religious people got so mad at Jesus. He was eating with the tax collectors. He was eating with the prostitutes. He was eating with those who didn't belong. He was giving his time. He was helping them feel loved. He was building relationship. Paul's saying, Peter, did you forget the gospel? Peter, you're distorting what is good. You know, in our Western culture, we love fences. You know, most backyards have a fence that keeps people out. And I was thinking about my last house, and I really did struggle to get to know my neighbors. You know, for the first, like, five years, the only time I would see my neighbor is when I'm out barbecuing, flipping burgers. And then we would talk from balcony to balcony. Hey, what are you cooking? Steaks. All right, I'm doing hot dogs, whatever. The thing about our backyard is that we didn't get much sun, and so we ended up hanging out kind of in the front. And so there was no fences in the front. And what we noticed was is when we're sitting in our lawn chairs, playing badminton, doing fun things with our kids, people would stop. We'd have conversation. And we started to really get to know the people on our streets because we didn't have this barrier that was keeping relationship from happening. And the thing is, is we all have barriers in our lives. Barriers at work, barriers in culture, barriers in relationships, barriers in our marriage, barriers in our spiritual life. And here's the question. What gets in the way that keeps you from living out the gospel? What are the barriers that keep people out? What are the barriers that we put in place that that keep people from feeling loved and accepted and part of the family? What are the things that we do? What are the things that we say? The things that we engage in that keep people at a distance? Can you name the barriers? Maybe they're internal barriers. Maybe it's because we're afraid to engage people that aren't like us. Maybe it's because something happened in the past keeps us from being in relationship. Maybe it's because we don't agree with someone. When we don't agree, we don't invite people to our table and engage with them. What are the barriers that keep you from living out the gospel so that people can know the good news of Jesus? What are the decisions that we selfishly endorse that keep people out? You know, because it's easier, because it's comfortable. Especially those that have come to faith and they want to be part of the family. What are we doing to break down the walls? What are we doing to engage people so they feel the love of Christ? 
And Paul is saying, remove the barriers. Look for ways to help people come in and be part of who we are. Look for ways that we can help foster connection and community. Be the bridge for different people who have different experiences and different backgrounds. Let people have a seat at our table. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, don't distort, distort the gospel. Paul is saying it's worth fighting for so that people can rightly know that they belong because of what Jesus has done. Next, do inconsistent actions matter? Do our inconsistent actions matter? Let's keep reading. Verse 13. This is what it says. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So he's talking about hypocrisy. We love that word. No, we don't. What is hypocrisy? Well, hypocrisy is simply this. A hypocrite is an actor, one who puts on a false face. It's a person who says one thing but does another. And I think it's important to say that we can often confuse sin with hypocrisy. Just because we are sinners, which we all are, doesn't mean that we're all phony. In other words, at times we can be sinning and not even realize it. In fact, the Bible tells us all of us are fallible. All of us have sin in our life. Every single one of us, including your pastor. But the good news of the gospel is we've all been rescued from our sin. That there's a way out. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we're all hypocrites. But at the same time, we've all been hypocrites at some point. Christian and non-Christian. Every person on this planet has been a hypocrite. So we're all in the same camp. In other words, we don't need to just point fingers. The people in this room were Christians. But someone can point the finger at every single person. And Paul is saying, hey, your actions matter. Your hypocrisy, it's actually leading people astray. Hey, Peter, what you do, what you say, and how you conduct yourself, it's making a difference. In fact, you're leading Barnabas astray. You're leading the church astray. You're putting things on top of the gospel that don't necessarily need to be there. Actually, they don't need to be there. Let me correct myself. You're adding to Christ. And Paul is saying that when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I had to say something. I had to correct the stream of hypocrisy that was 
getting into the church, that was getting into the leadership. You know, it's worth noting that even the apostles made mistakes. Peter? Think about it. The disciple Peter is being corrected. That means none of us are above being called out for sin. None of us. No leader, no pastor, no apostle. So why did Peter do this? It's because Peter fell into the trap of pleasing people. He's going along with a group that imposes this extra set of rules to keep that group comfortable. And while he does that, he pushes out another group. He's concerned more about what they think than what God thinks. He's more concerned about what's easier than the people that need to belong. He's more concerned about religion than he is relationship. You know, we've all been like that. We've all tried to make decisions, and before we make the decisions, especially when it's a hard one, we go, oh, what are they going to think? What are they going to do? You know, then anxiety kind of sets in, and we're worried about the outcomes. You know, will I be invited to their table, their Christmas party? What if I don't go along with what the group is wanting? What if I don't say the right thing? What what if I don't dress the right way? What if, what if, what if? And at times, we avoid the hard conversations. At at times, we neglect what is right. We, We worry about the outcome, which isn't necessarily the right outcome. And this is what happens when we seek to please people rather than God. You know, we started reading a book as a staff this week called Managing Leadership Anxiety. It's by Steve Cuss. And I was reading chapter two, and the sermon was almost done. I was like, oh my goodness. This is exactly what I'm talking about. This is what he says. Anxiety is generated when we think we need something in any particular moment that we don't actually need. Anxiety shrinks the power of the gospel because it presents a false gospel, one of self-reliance rather than reliance on God. Isn't that good? Then he goes on to tell a story that when he was younger, he had this compulsive need to be the center of attention. Uh, he was a funny guy. He would make jokes in the classroom, and people would laugh, but usually there was one or two people that wouldn't go along with his humor. And so then he would make that person the brunt of his joke. And he would pick on them. And he would hurt them. And he said many times he saw that person leave in tears. And because that person didn't go along with his humor, he would harm them. 
says this, there was something very dark in me that needed affirmation, even at the cost of another person. But that behavior always led to death every single time. Death of my own freedom, death of a healthy relationship, death of my reputation. And that's how I knew it was sin. When, my, when I gave myself to it, there was no life in it. There was only death. So well said. This is exactly what Paul's saying. He's saying, our hypocrisy harms others. Our hypocrisy actually harms us. Our hypocrisy, our play acting distorts the gospel. It distorts what God is trying to do in our own hearts, in our own life. It keeps us separated from him. And to be quite honest, as a parent, this humbles me. Because our kids see almost everything behind closed doors. They can see what is said. They can see what we're doing. They can see the hypocrisy. They know if our relationship with God is being lived out by what we do, how we spend our time and our resources and our money, how we treat one another. You know, the scratch and sniff test? Our kids can sniff it out. You can say whatever you want, but your kids will know if you're genuinely following Christ or if it's all an act. Man, that humbles me. It brings me back to the cross. It reminds me that I need Jesus. It reminds me that my actions actually matter. That I can't just get up here and preach a sermon, but what I do from Monday to Sunday behind closed doors actually matters. You know, Paul actually gives Timothy some effective counsel on hypocrisy in 1 Timothy 4.15. And the commentator Bruce Barton says this, these are the questions that we need to ask ourselves to avoid hypocrisy. Am I participating in behaviors that I know Scripture does not condone? Or what parts of my life would I not want my children or friends to imitate? Or what specific commands in Scripture have I not applied to my life? Do we just pick and choose? What's comfortable? What fits my agenda? What fits our culture so well? And has God given me responsibilities that I've been ignoring? What has God called you to do? How are you gifted? How are you building his kingdom? How are you participating in the gospel? What hard things is God saying, hey, I have this for you. You know, one of our values as a church is that we value people of integrity. We want to be people of integrity. And our value is simply this. 
We will honor Christ and his church with truth, consistency, and transparency in our words and in our actions. And if we don't live with integrity, nothing else matters. Right? People can see if we are genuinely following Christ and if we're not. Especially the people who are close to us. So if you're feeding, feeling defeated and you're like, oh man, <laughs> Steve, I feel beat up. I'm a hypocrite. I, I don't even stand a chance. Actually, Paul shows us how we can do this. Let's keep going. How does the gospel help us be consistent with our actions? How does the gospel change us? You know, verse 14, to go back there, he says, But when I saw their conduct was not in step with truth of the gospel, he calls them out. So how do we keep in step with truth? How do we keep in step with Christ every single day? Every moment that we kind of veer off, how do we walk closely? Well, Paul tells us, he reminds us of that undeserving grace and the love of God that was demonstrated on the cross when Christ was crucified us. He brings us back to the cross. And Paul is saying, because of God's actions, our actions can change. Because of what God did on the cross, we can walk in step. We can be reminded of that love, that costly love that was demonstrated. And in verse 20, this is what he says, this is how you do it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me. I have been crucified with Christ. Well, what does he mean? In other words, the Christian life is about dying to yourself. It's about dying to what the flesh wants. It's about dying to sinful desires. Paul is saying, it is no longer my flesh that I live for, but I live for Christ who's in me, who's changing me, who's transforming me. It means we're no longer living for the dopamine hit that we think that we need. It means that we're no longer living to put ourselves first. It means that we're no longer living so we can make a name for ourselves. We're no longer living so that you can serve me first. We're crucified with Christ. Paul is just reiterating what Jesus told us. In Matthew 16, 24, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. They must take up their cross and follow me. How do we do that? 
know, Steve Cuss, I think, put it really well. He says this, our job is to die to that false self. That, that self that lives for the flesh, to feel good, to get what I want. That's not who you really are in Christ. Our job is to die. But God's job is to transform us into the likeness of Christ. And I think the question is, what do we actually need to put to death? What app needs to be deleted that keeps stumbling you? What needs to be thrown out? What's taking you off track? What has you enslaved? What are you serving? G.D. Greer says most of us think that the gospel is just for the new Christian. Right? You, you pray the prayer. You walk through the door. I'm a Christian. I got the gospel. You know, as that's the gospel's only job is to get you through the door. You know, we pray, our relationship with Jesus begins. He says this, we jump from the diving board into this pool of Christian living. From there, we can swim off to enjoy all the changes in life that go along with being a believer. But the gospel is not only the diving board, but it's actually the entire pool. So even as that big splash dies down and we're floating freely there in that new experience, as we get further and further from the diving board, it doesn't mean that we're moving beyond the gospel, but deeper into the gospel. The gospel means you're swimming in it. It's all around you. It's the purest waters that flow from the spring of life that are found as you go deeper and deeper into the well of the good news. And I love this. But the gospel is not just the way that you begin, but the gospel is the way that you grow. It's not just where you start, but it's where you're going. And he says, remaining in the deep end of the gospel is how renewed Christian living keeps flowing out of us. This is how we grow. This is how our actions become more like Christ. We're swimming in the deep gospel. We truly know the love of God at a deeper level. We know Scripture. We're applying Scripture. We're swimming in it. We're applying it. We're seeing it change our life. We're seeing victory. And he says when we swim in the gospel, that's how you get audacious faith, changed thinking, unselfishness in relationships, new freedoms and generosity. The each come from understanding the new depth of what God has done for you and who you are in Christ. 
That false self is dead. It's dying. The more you swim in the gospel, the more that you're putting that to death. But here's the thing. I think some of us need to get back in the pool. Some of us are on the sidelines in the lawn chair, drinking a cold one, enjoying the world. We're not swimming in the gospel. We've gone cold. We've gone weak. We're not dying to self. We're letting sin reign again. So how do you find freedom from sin? Get back in the pool and start swimming. Start swimming in the gospel every day. Know it intimately. Grow in it. Struggle in it. Kick and scream and know that God loves you. That there's forgiveness for you. That he's with you. This is how our actions change. This is why Paul says, live by faith in the Son of God. In who loved me and gave himself for me. We're not separate, but we are in. Christ is alive in us. It's swimming in the gospel that helps us be consistent. Call the worship team up. Call the prayer teams up. But here's three questions. First question is, what is worth fighting for? When you have conflict in your life, what are you fighting for? Are you fighting for your own preferences so that you get your own way? Or are you fighting for the gospel? The other question is, what actions need to change? As you spend time in God's word, what is he telling you to change? What needs to be deleted? What needs to be destroyed? What needs to be put aside? What needs to be brought in the light? Who do you need to tell to help you walk through some difficult things that are keeping you enslaved? And how can you swim in the gospel this week? Just take a moment and talk to God, and then I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to close the service. God, help us to be a church that fights for the right thing. That fights that you can be made known in our life and in our actions. So God, as we come back to the cross, 
us to lay those things down that keep us from being inconsistent, that keep us entangled, that keep us enslaved, so that we can be people of freedom. God, help us to deeply know the gospel so that it isn't just words, but it's something that impacts our hearts and our decisions and changes the way that we interact with you and with others. So God, we do pray for freedom in this place. Help us to be a free people who can smile because we know what you did for us on the cross and that it is making a difference in our life. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that we no longer have to live as slaves. God, I pray if there's people that need to take their next steps that they would have the courage Come and talk to a staff member to receive you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together.